Hello, my name's Damien Morgan. I'm Head of Careers and Industry Liaison for BIM Manchester. And this is the first episode in what we hope will be a, a long-running series, exploring the careers and lives of our lecturers. It's amusingly titled BIM There, Done That. Hopefully you'll enjoy these interviews in which we're going to talk to lecturers at BIM Manchester and find out a little bit more about them and get under their skin. this episode we're going to concentrate on production and I have two of the production team in front of me Lee Doyle and James Thorne welcome thank you hello <laughs> and I'm going to interview you two in turn I'm going to start with James first and we'll dive straight in with you sir if you don't mind so just tell me what's your role at BIM uh, my role is Deputy Course Leader for the Music Production Degrees. Uh, so we've got a few different single and joint honour degree courses that both myself and Lee Doyle run. So yeah, keeping all that on track. Right. And outside of BIM, what professionally keeps you busy? Uh, a number of different things. So a lot of mix work, so mix engineer. Uh, also uh, recording, although mostly remote recording or at least kind of overdubbing type stuff. And then when I can, gigging and a bit of kind of session stuff as well. So my primary instruments, electric bass and double bass. And what kind of styles of music is it uh, you tend to get booked for? All kinds, really. Um, for the most part, um, uh, jazz, a lot of jazz stuff. Well, the Yaz, yeah. uh, Soft J, obviously. Um, <laughs> and acoustic stuff, so double bass tends to lend itself to acoustic folk yeah. stuff. And then kind of, yeah, solely pop rock stuff. Right. So quite broad, but um, those spheres. The spheres, lovely. So I've got a, a, a list of questions for you, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, the purpose of which are to explore... Maybe areas that you have worked in that students might not be aware of, mm-hmm. or and maybe giving a little bit of indication to students of what a career in production can mean. So I'm going to start with, uh, I guess, um, what's the one thing you wish you'd known when you began your career? Uh, one thing I wish I'd known. I guess the, the bit that people don't always talk to you or tell you about initially when getting into any career, but particularly something like the arts, which of course music production is part of, mm. is finding ways to fill the gaps between the things that you want to do. So ironically, despite talking about how I got into the industry, I think the thing that people need to kind of bear in mind is how do you facilitate your dream or your career, your path? Um, so I think it's particularly when you when you leave university, for instance, mm. You know, a lot of students, quite rightfully, are really keen on getting stuck into their career and getting, you know, jumping in with two feet. But uh, particularly at the moment, in, as we're recording this, we're in the midst of a pandemic. So those jobs are still out there, but you're going to have to work pretty hard to get them. So I guess the, the bits that I'm referring to here is, you know, the bar work, the other bits of work that you probably don't necessarily want to do, but have to do to get by. Mm. Um, you know, some of the, the jobs I did were either for free or for ridiculously low money. Uh, this is production work, I should say, which consequently wasn't enough to get by on. So there's all kinds of other bar work, temp work, supermarket work that I had to do to be able to pay the rent, keep the, keep the uh, you know, the electricity bill running whilst you then also pursue your career. So I think um, 
yeah, ironically, it's about what can you kind of pursue as part of your career and what then you're going to have to realistically accept that you need to do on top of that mm. to be able to facilitate it. Mm. Um, so I think that's the thing that a lot of people need to kind of think about going forwards is absolutely what is your profession, but how are you actually going to facilitate doing that? Because it may yeah. not be something that you jump straight into at full whack, full work, yeah. you know, 24-7. Can you remember your first kind of foray into doing any kind of production? Yeah, well, my first kind of first ever stuff I remember playing around with was on a piece of software called Hip Hop EJ, which was like late 90s, early noughties kind of uh, building block sample software on on Windows, which was pretty simplistic, pretty basic. That was pretty good fun just to get you wrap your head around what sounds go together, what beats, what things kind of, you know, train, you know, starting that process of ear training, I suppose. In terms of kind of professional work, uh, theatre is what I started in. Essentially live sound, but yeah, theatre production. Right, interesting. So worked in a theatre for a couple of years. And then I get that's, you know, a lot of problem solving, microphones, gain, speakers, all that kind of stuff. I know from my experience, when things go wrong, you probably learn 10 times more that when things go right half the time, mm. you know, having to solve problems or having to overcome issues. But is, is, this, is there something which you've had to overcome and, and what did you learn from that? Yeah. I mean, it, we, practitioners, producers, engineers, make mistakes all the time. And a mistake is always such a, is in such a negative way of thinking about it. Um, but we can't help but do that. And that, that I'm not so concerned about, as long as it doesn't ruin a session. The thing I've found that have been the biggest learning curves is is people skills. It's knowing how to deal with people. It's knowing mm-hmm. how to preempt a situation and potentially have options to kind of get around that. So, yeah. so dealing with um, uh, egotistical artists or managers or, mm-hmm. you know, um, used to run, I used to run a live sound venue in Liverpool for a few years and... Uh, yeah, one of my pet peeves was uh, the parents that were also their managers. Their uh, parents were the oh, managers yeah. of uh, their dadages. kids. Yes, dadages, that's <laughs> it. Uh, who also were possibly the roadies as well. So they yeah. had an opinion on where the mics went on the amp, what the sound was coming out of the speakers, the time management of the gig, then usually used to stand next to you at the desk. And you understand where they're coming from all this. They just want it to be good mm. and sound good for their offspring. But yeah, Jesus, they... People skills were lacking. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's knowing where to kind of stand your ground and knowing yes. where to bite your tongue. And particularly yes. if you're starting out in the industry, you'll probably be an, an assistant in some shape or form, studio, mm. theatre, live. And it's kind of knowing for the most part just to shut up, mm. you know, just take it in, ask questions when appropriate. But ultimately, you are secondary to somebody's song and somebody's career as an engineer. And, you know, you're there to learn and necessarily impart an opinion or you know give advice yeah yeah I've, I've seen that with producers well I think the best producers I've seen have been the ones who kind of absorb a lot of nonsense mm. and give very direct clear instruction and it is a skill for mm. sure because I guess when you're working in a confined environment for a long time you have to learn to be gracious and diplomatic and all those things what advice would you give to someone who's wanting to pursue a career that's similar to yours? What skills have you found useful and what advice would you give? I'd say um, lead, lead with your gut. So by that I mean, again, so some people do know exactly what they want to do. 
but some people don't. They just have a feeling that they like recording music or they like, you know, recording on location, whatever it might be. And that's that's good, but that's not really enough to give you a, a route. That gives you a destination vaguely, but even that's quite formless. So I'd say, you know, if you wanted a way of finding that out, is go with your gut. What have you enjoyed? What is it that you actually... You know, if you've studied a degree at BIM, for instance, or, or somewhere else, then there's probably going to be some module, some assessment, some elements of it that you enjoyed more than others. So if you can identify that, that's good, and that might take a little bit of thought. Um, beyond that would be a case of being, okay, what opportunities can I find to get into this? You know, mm. A lot of the time, realistically, it will be volunteering for things because people don't really want to pay for a service if that service isn't going to be any good. That's just mm. a universal thing. Why do you pay lots for something that's crap? Equally, um, you know, if you've got not got the experience uh, or the kind of reputation behind you, they're not going to pay you anyway. So I think it's identify what you feel good doing, what kind of yeah. brings you joy, and then, you know, try and find some opportunities doing that. And it will be you approaching people. People aren't going to approach you. Mm. So it's about kind of reaching out and going, you know, can I assist on this? Can I observe it? You know, what do you need me to do? You know, it'll be a long days potentially uh, and little or no pay, which comes back to my point of you know having a way of filling the rest of the time but um yeah if you don't know what you want to do try and figure that out first if you do try and find some roots into that which again is where using the context that BIM has using you know the careers using the tutors the lecturers who are all practitioners mm. use them as a touchstone for that is there any person in your life that's influenced your career or is there is there a pivotal meeting or a an interview you heard or someone you saw or maybe an, an industry figure that sparked an interest for you or inspired you? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm sure with all of us it's difficult to find the genesis, but I think that in terms of individuals, in terms of direct contact, it's probably my, my course leader at my degree, as much as I'm trying to uh, to uh, pedal both Lee and I in our roles. <laughs> it generally was my course leader at, uh, for my degree. He was just very knowledgeable and communicated that well. And also, once I'd left university, when I was looking to go into teaching, he actually recommended me for a teaching post at another university. They'd actually reached out to him, and he kind of thought, well, I've got a few graduates who, you know, finished a few years ago who may be good for it. And he actually kind of suggested that I got involved. I mean, that was kind of it. He kind of goes, this yeah. is available to you. It's up to you to go pursue it. But he did make that initial contact. So obviously, everyone's in a career in music, first and foremost, because they love music mm. and they've got a passion for it. And I assume kind of a jazz fan and, and other yeah. genres. But yeah. So what was the first music you heard that inspired you? And was there a piece of music that you, that you listened to and thought, wow? There's, there's a few. I mean, invariably for me, it's been an emotional connection a lot of the time. And, and it, it wasn't really until I'd kind of studied or, or a given specific credence to the sound quality stuff that you really pick up mm. on that. One of the first ones for me was Barbara O'Reilly by The Who, just because it's a tune that I just remember from a very young age liking it. And then also just the more I listen to it, it's just a great tune in terms of kind of just sense of space. It's a bit crunchy, it's a bit rough and ready. Um, so yeah, got to love a bit of The Who. Other tracks, I mean, so many. Um, Chameleon by Herbie Hancock. Right. It's a great tune, kind of envelope synth bass line beginning of it and then disappears for about literally about 15 minutes I think the extended version of that tune uh, but again just in terms of sort of arrangement and vibe and that track is really laid back there's not much to it but yet it kind of works Steely Dan loads so many of those records sounded so much cleaner and beyond 
much else that was being recorded at the time, particularly those kind of early mid seventies records. Um, Reading in the years, you know, Ricky, don't be hasty. Those kind of classic tunes for me, great examples of arrangement and recording techniques as well. If if we were to play a little bit of one of those songs mm. right now, which mm. one would you choose? Um, it's all quite old tunes, aren't they? But uh, I'd probably go with uh, Barbara O'Reilly. By the way. Out here in the fields, James Thorne, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. Thank and you. Uh, take care of yourself. Thank you very much. I'll hopefully speak to you soon. So my second guest on this first episode of Bim There, Done That, is Lee Doyle. Hello, Lee. Could you just introduce yourself and tell me what you do at Bim Manchester? Hi, Damien. Pleased to meet you. Yeah, so uh, obviously my name's Lee Doyle. I'm the course leader for the music production courses, which there are several of, as uh, James has outlined earlier on. I'm interested to know what was your first foray into production work. Can you remember what you would identify as like the start of your career? Absolutely. The start of my career was actually in education. Back in the day, we did BTECs and there wasn't really a BTEC in music production. It was some audio engineering with entertainment in there. So they threw us into the into the uh, theatre to do the sound for the theatre students. And, and basically it was just being recognised as listening to what they were saying over the comms from mm. your lecturers, from your tutors and what was going on. And people say, oh, actually, he's listening to what's going on and he can answer cues. So being able to, you know, start the cue for whenever it was and the sound effects on the soundscape for the theatre, etc., and just generally built from there, really. There wasn't any seminal point. I kind of eased in slowly. It's almost like a logarithmic scale within to the industry. <laughs> Interestingly... Both yourself and James have highlighted that this is about working with sound as opposed to necessarily working with music. And that broadens out so many things for what you could do with with the skills. Absolutely. I mean, my career started in the theatre. I hope it doesn't end in the theatre. I, I spent a lot of my time since then working in education, trying to get away from the performing arts, to be honest, because... Yeah. I was much more musically orientated than I was actor orientated. Mm. But you take the work wherever it comes and it's all it's all it's about using your ears. The biggest tools you've got are yeah. your ears in the industry, regardless of the amount of doors, etc., that we use nowadays and everyone's looking at the screen. I think that a big mistake that lots of young producers can make is looking at a waveform on a screen saying, Does that look okay? rather mm. than using their ears because it's yeah. all about what's going into your head via your ears. And also, in these different environments, you're dealing with different types of people. Oh, absolutely. Which is, you know, for better or worse, broadens your skills as a, as a human. Yes, yeah, yeah, definitely. Social skills is a massive, massive thing that you need to consider. Yeah. So what's one thing you wish you'd known when you began your career? Generally, more about the, the industry. And, and the industry is an industry, which means it's a business, which ultimately means it's about making money. And I was always of the, you know, oh, my talent will shine through. I'm just going to, as a performer as well as a producer, I was like, well, when I go on stage, I'm just going to wear a black sweatshirt because it doesn't really matter. It's all about the music. Well, 
it is all about the music, but it's also about image as well, or your professional persona as well, and how you come across to other people. No matter how good you actually are, if you don't appear to be that good, you're not going to get the work. And I would say that that definitely held me back, probably partly from my own arrogance more than anything else. Yeah. Interesting. I'm sure we've all spoken to plenty of people who are higher up in the industry or working in the industry who know people who are very good at what they do but aren't particularly nice to work with. Mm. And that can make such a massive difference, can't it? Absolutely. <laughs> Don't look at me like that. <laughs> um, is there anything that's happened to you in your career or any kind of failures or mishaps or missteps that you've learned from and how, how have you... How did you learn from those? Loads and loads of mistakes. Um, I mean, the old the old cliche is true. You learn from your mistakes. You don't learn from, if you get it right first time, what have you actually learned from it? I remember doing live sound at once for, it was in Charlton at the Irish Centre, I think. And um, it was like, yeah, well, I know about music production. I know about mm. all types of desks. And it was an Allen and Heath desk. And there was no sound coming out. And I was scratching my head. And... Um, it was literally because when you turn the desk on, all the channels mute, and um, it was reversed to what they normally are. <laughs> so basically there was a signal going in, but there was nothing coming out through the yeah. main outs. Uh, so that was quite embarrassing as well as a, as a mistake. So it's making assumptions. And on that, as a self-produced artist, well, I say self-produced, within bands, self-produced artist, it's making the assumption that you are, yeah, we're, we're good, we're really good players, we've rehearsed enough, uh, yeah, that level's okay, etc. And then when you listen back to your demo and you're playing it to some industry professionals in a symposium type scenario, you go, actually, that sounds pretty awful. So yeah, the lack of preparation, uh, generally speaking, or the the assumption that you know things, uh, not doing your research really. Yeah, yeah. Um, what advice would you give to a student who's embarking? Well, I mentioned before that I, I had a little bit of arrogance about the whole image type of thing, but quite ironically to that, I didn't actually have that much confidence in my own abilities. And I think that a lot of people in the situation that I was in then, that they would be in now, you need to have confidence in your own abilities, but there is a difference between confidence and conceit, definitely. <laughs> you need to have confidence in what you can do, and if you think that you can do it, you probably can do it and put your hand up because you won't get the work unless you put the hand up. I didn't have that much confidence in myself, so I did miss out on quite a few opportunities where I probably could have succeeded and I definitely would have made money out of it. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a good message to send out, just saying take the chance. And actually, if it's something, an experience that you don't enjoy, ultimately, you've learned from it that maybe that's not well, the that, thing that's that it, you absolutely. want to do. Well, that's it, If you don't put yourself in that situation, you don't get the chance to succeed. Mm. And if you don't succeed, you don't get the chance to learn from where you don't succeed. So what have you actually got to lose? Yeah. And you may meet someone doing that that's pivotal. Absolutely. Which brings me to the next question, I suppose, which is, has there been anyone who's been influential for you? What drew me towards education was actually negative experience at schools mm -hmm. and um, lesser so, but at university as well. So um, I, basically what I wanted to do, I wanted to 
do better than the experience that I had or provide better than the experience that I had. To put this into context, northwest of England, northwest of Manchester, working class or even underclass boy, just got jobs in factories, etc. Thought I'd, I'd chuck my uh, hat in the ring, for want of a better expression. Mm. Went to college to do this audio engineering, entertainment-based um, college course. And again, the, uh, the, 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 the course leader said, oh, you've, you're actually doing well and you're listening and you're getting good results. Why don't you go to university? And I was like, don't be silly. None of my family have been to university. Mm-hmm. But again, it was this point where it was like, actually, I've got an opportunity to get out of where I'm at now. So it was that point yeah. that kind of almost turned my life around. The guy, uh, the course leader, um, had a very monotone voice. He was actually known as BBC Brian because he used to work <laughs> at the BBC. But um, And people literally fell asleep in his classes quite often. But because I was interested, yeah. because I was passionate about what I wanted to do, it was recognised and he said, you can actually do this, you know. And that turned my life around. Mm. I mean, that's something we've got in common, for sure, is sort of going against the expectation of what you've, being told you can do if you are on a degree course here or diploma it's it's a privilege to be able to do that and have those chances and i think uh, something you should really embrace um is there a myth about production about things you do that you think needs debunking there aside are from obviously the the glamour that you clearly exude <laughs> <laughs> I can fix it in the mix is definitely a myth. Yeah. People don't pay attention as producers or engineers a lot of the time as the actual performer, mm. to the performer, should I say. So, you know, to get the best possible performance out of somebody, but also fixing it in the mix is no replacement for getting the, the initial performance. But also it doesn't matter about how much money you spend on equipment, whether that's microphones, whether that's desks, whether that's software, especially plugins for music producers, you get the best work out of the best sound source. If that recording or if you're manipulating it doesn't sound quite as good as the best performance, that's not too much of an issue. But if you've got the best possible equipment but a really poor sound source, you get a really good capture of a really poor sound source. Mm if you follow the logic there. So yes. it's not it's not all about the equipment. You need to know about the equipment and learn about the equipment that you've got before you buy any more equipment. Otherwise you end up with a room full of knobs and switches that you don't know what mm. to do. Mm. Random question for you. Relating to my own experience of being in studios over the past 20, 30 years, has that changed in some part with digital recording as opposed to tape whereas maybe the better performance has to be given because it's being committed to tape rather than the almost disposable nature of loads of digital takes is there there something in that i would i would say so anecdotally yes Uh, there's Mm. the old there's the old thing of the 24 track mentality um i would say i mean the really good thing about digital is it's democratized the whole industry 
So that means that anyone can kind of access things. Nowadays, you can get in a laptop, which would cost you hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of, of, of you know, analog equipment in a studio, etc. But on the downside to that, it, all, it also means that anyone thinks that they can do it. Yeah. Now, some people can do it and some people can't do it. The, the the upside is that a lot more people a lot more people get recognised for their actual talent and it gets broadcast uh, or opened up to the wider industry a lot easier. But on the downside, it kind of in a way de-skills people as well. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. It's it's an interesting process. I've been around it before. I was working in music, being in studios, watching a couple of bands record to tape and seeing how they worked. And then thinking back to that when I've been in studios where they've been recording digitally, um, I was around Clang, Name Drop, watching the Smiths record The Boy with the Thorny Side as a demo, which actually got released. And that was all. I, I saw the tapes about 20 years later with mushrooms like growing <laughs> on them. You know, the, the guy in the studio hadn't It's cats, not just it's, that. In the, in the wider context of the industry, it's the irony is that we get much more high fidelity equipment you know we change from analog to digital arguably you can argue both ways which sounds better the irony is that most people listen to them on really poor file formats mm -hmm. and, and listen yeah. listen to them on really poor um playback systems yes. whereas when i was a kid the the people the haves that i knew all at high end are hi-fi so they could really pick up on it so there is a there is a dichotomy about the whole production industry yeah. there um, final question, probably the most difficult one, really, because, you know, as I said to James, we are all in this business because we love music. We're obsessed with it. We're all fans. And I think it's fair to say, as uh, speaking for myself, and I know you're like this, when you're a teenager and massive fan, and that hasn't changed, that obsession and kind of love for music. So if you can narrow it down to a piece of music or two that, you feel has inspired you, what would those pieces be? I'm going to have to say three there, Damien, just to upset you. We'll let you have three. Go um, on. So as the, the first elder statesman one, of production. As a, as, a, <laughs> as a child, listening to um, listening to my parents' radiogram, that's what they used to call mm. it back in the day, it was actually, no one would know this, it was the Eurythmics, um, what's the title of the track? It's the one that... Um, Oh, not sweet dreams. Yes, yeah, sweet dreams. Yeah, yeah. sweet dreams. And it stands up today. That so it was just it stood song, out yeah. to from everything else that was heard mm. as a bass player because, as James alluded to before, we all do need portfolio careers. Uh, I'm just going to digress a little bit because the way that I came up through my career was doing live sound uh, in theatres and then for councils and then for community groups mm. and then doing production workshops. And as James said, the EJ. The hip hop EJ is one of the tools that I use to actually bring student, well, young people in and express mm. themselves and then going into actually performance myself and then um, producing my own indie bands, for want of a better word. Yeah. And now my production is pretty much just vanity projects of my own, to be <laughs> honest. The other track as a bass player would have to be Hanging Around by The Stranglers. Right. And it fulfills that kind of punk ethic of your best resource is your uh, initiative. Yeah. Regardless of whatever tools are at hand, it's your initiative. You use what is available to you. And then from an emotional context, it would probably have to be from the same album that James mentioned, but probably either 
let's say the song is over. That would be a nice one to finish on. Okay, well, we'll play it out now. Thank you so much, Lee Doyle. Thank you very much. She was the first song I ever sang But it stopped as soon as it listening to the first episode of Bim There Done That and thank you to James and Lee for being my guests. Tune in next time. I don't know who we're going to speak to but keep a look out on the socials and you'll find out and again thank you for listening. Take care of yourselves.